You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Christians for Trump, which is a thing has a Facebook page. And this weekend, they posted something to their Facebook page that Josh Marshall at Talking Points Memo uh, took a picture of and tweeted out, I follow Josh on Twitter, and you should too. I don't follow Christians for Trump on Facebook, and you shouldn't either. But it's a picture of, I believe, Miley Cyrus, and also a picture of Rosie O'Donnell and Katy Perry and Beyonce and Someone in the upper left-hand corner, I'm not quite sure who she is, but maybe it's Courtney Love. And they're all grabbing their own crotches. They're all grabbing their pussies. And the caption from Christians for Donald Trump is, Christians, sorry for the visual, but we must show the hypocrisy. These are the same ones that are offended and support Hillary. Offended, of course, by Donald Trump's comments on the bus with Billy Bean about because he's famous and rich and so very attractive that he can do whatever he wants to women, including grab them by the pussy. And this is supposedly showing the hypocrisy because look at all of these women, many of them beloved by the left, Hillary Clinton supporter, Katy Perry, uh, Donald Trump antagonist. Rosie O'Donnell, Miley Cyrus, not sure who she's supporting, but look at all of these liberal left dem women and what are they doing? They're grabbing pussy, just like Donald Trump. And what they don't quite grok, as the kids are going to stop saying once they hear me saying it, what they don't quite grok is that these are women grabbing their own pussies. That we can infer consent here when someone grabs their own pussy. When someone masturbates, when a guy gives himself a hand job, that doesn't require affirmative consent at that moment. That doesn't require yes to be said out loud because he's grabbing his own dick, not somebody else's dick. These women are grabbing their own pussies. It is consensual. They are touching their own bodies. Their right to touch their own bodies does not somehow transmorgify into a right for creepy orange, sexist, shitty, racist, xenophobic billionaires to grab them by the pussy if he feels so motivated. A woman's right to control her own body, to decide for herself whether she's going to have a baby and who gets to touch her, a concept that eludes many on the right. Also consent, a concept that eludes many on the right, as evidenced last week by Rush Limbaugh, who had this to say. Do you know what the magic word, the only thing that matters in American sexual mores today is one thing. You can do anything. The left will promote and understand and tolerate anything as long as there is one element. Do you know what it is? Consent. If there is consent on both or all three or all four, however many are involved in the sex act, it's perfectly fine, whatever it is. But if the left ever senses and smells that there's no consent in part of the equation, then here come the rape police. But consent is the magic key to the left. So what Rush is saying here is that the left thinks that emphasizing the importance of obtaining someone's consent 
to touch them sexually is evidence of steep moral decline, whereas those of us on the left who emphasize the importance of obtaining consent think that obtaining consent is evidence that you are not fucking raping someone. So basically this old drug and rage addict who leads and speaks for so many in the Republican base, a man whose life's work has culminated in a very real threat to our republic. He wants to return us to a time when consensual sex between gay perverts was a crime and straight men could legally rape their wives, a.k.a. the good old days. And it wasn't that long ago. Marital rape, just one of the many forms of rape that Donald Trump is alleged to know something about, didn't become a crime in all 50 states until 1993. And the last state sodomy bans weren't overturned until 2003. But it's not just marital rape that this fissured old asshole Rush Limbaugh is supporting here. When Rush complains about the rape police, a.k.a. the police, showing up if there's no consent in part of the equation, we all know exactly which part of the equation he's referring to. The lady part of the equation. If the woman hasn't consented to being kissed, to having her pussy grabbed, to being penetrated, that's somehow a huge problem for Rush nowadays. Oh, thanks, Obama. Even if the other half of the equation, that would be the kisser, the groper, the GOP nominee, happens to be straight and male and maybe orange. Rush believes man-on-woman sex should be perceived as virtuous, even in the absence of consent, which makes it not sex, makes it rape, but even in the absence of consent, he believes it is virtuous because, hey, whatever else you might say about that kind of sex, it's dehumanizing, it's traumatizing, it's rape. At least there's nothing gay about it. Genitals, they're the magic ingredient for Rush Limbaugh. Genitals, not consent, is what matters most to Rush. And if you're working with one of each, one cock, one pussy, it's perfectly fine, says Rush, even if the person with the vagina hasn't consented. Which brings us back to Christians for Donald Trump. I don't know if Jesus Christ himself is on Facebook, but I hope he is. I hope he sees their page. I hope someday he can stop throwing up. All right, speaking of consent, coming up today on The Regular Show, tons of your questions. And coming up on the Magnum, which you can subscribe to at www.savagelovecast.com, a discussion about a very tricky issue when it comes to consent, sexual advance directives. It's an interesting convo with a law professor on the Magnum on today's show. All coming up. Dan, this is the escort slash hooker who called in. So I just had a client leave and... You know, I get a lot of Republicans because they have some disposable income, those guys. But this guy quoted the recent Donald Trump video saying, grab you by the pussy three different times. And I was horrified. I didn't know what to say. And it sort of speaks to a bigger question that my lovely, amazing, understanding boyfriend has been mentioning to me lately, which is that I should use this position as a highly paid, highly coveted escort as sort of an um, educational position, if you will, to perhaps instruct people how, you know, to not make their wives so miserable that they won't have sex with them in some cases. In other cases, I'm sure their wives have other perfectly legitimate reasons. But... um how do you do that and still maintain your bottom line? I'm just a little befuddled. I'm also a little bit shy. I'm a little bit of a sub. And in this 
in this case, I should have been like, you know, his hand was in my cunt and he said, what did Trump say? Grab him by the pussy. And I was so horrified, but I didn't say anything. What should I have said? And what do I say when men are treating my clitoris like, you know, a tiny penis and just like sucking on it until I feel like all my nerve endings are going to die? What's the best way of educating men without like throwing them off of, of my brand, so to speak? Leave them in better condition than you found them. That's the campsite rule that I originally came up with uh, to talk about relationships with large uh, age differences. That, you know, if you're in your 40s and you're dating someone who's 19 or 22, and I don't think those are always exploitative relationships, those can be very good relationships. Usually, though, not relationships that are destined to go the distance, which is not the only metric for assessing whether a relationship was good or successful. You should. Make an effort, a good faith effort to leave them in better condition than you found them. No unplanned pregnancies, no lies about the likelihood of going the distance, no sexually transmitted infections, no unnecessary heartbreak or emotional trauma, and hopefully some better skills and maybe some better interpersonal relationship skills and some slightly higher emotional IQ by dint of the benefit of your worldliness and experience. And people pointed out after I came up with the campsite rule that that should apply to all our relationships, even if there's no age imbalance that we should all endeavor to leave each other in better condition than we found each other. Even if it's not a sexual or an intimate or romantic relationship, we should try to leave the barista this morning in better condition than we found the barista this morning. But in your role, your professional capacity as a service provider, you're in a, a strange position where, you know, in a typical leave them in better condition than you found them relationship, you might have to be assertive. You might have to be prescriptive. You might have to talk sense to somebody. You might have to fuck sense into somebody. You might have to pull them up short and explain things to them. You're an older gay man and you're in your you know late 30s and you're dating some 22-year-old and you learned a decade ago what was wrong with putting no fats, no femmes, no Asians, just my preferences on a personal ad because that's hurtful and it's unnecessary and it's shitty and it's racist. It's all these other things. That, and you learned that and you know better now. And you're with somebody who's 22 and he, that's on his profile. You might want to say something. You, you, it's your job to leave them in better condition than you found them to scold that person. But you can't really scold someone when you're the escort. You're there to play a part. You're there to play an erotic role. It's a little drama. For one, you've been hired to perform, to play a character. Make this person feel like what they're doing is sexy. That doesn't mean that you should have to put up with physical discomfort. If they're sucking your clit for such a long time that it's physically uncomfortable or painful, redirect their energies and be assertive in that moment. Like, that's no longer feeling so hot. Let's move over here. Make me feel good by going over to this erogenous zone for a little while with your sucking skills. But I'm not sure that you can be prescriptive in the same way in this commodified relationship that you would be prescriptive in a romantic relationship. That he's saying these shitty things, that he's invoking Donald Trump while he has his hand in your cunt, just quoting you. That would be a turnoff to me. If I were in your position and that were my pussy we were talking about, that would be the Sahara of pussies the first time he said it. 
by the third time he said it, it would be sucking the moisture out of his arm. He would be rapidly dehydrating. His arm attached to that hand would look like beef jerky by the third time he said it. Because at that point, my pussy wouldn't just be dry. It would be not a dehumidifier. What do you call it? Would you, you put meat in it to turn it into beef jerky. It dehydrates shit. It would be a dehydrator, a commercial industrial strength dehydrator that can reduce a cow to a pile of beef jerky in five seconds. That would be what my pussy would be the third time I heard, like Donald Trump grab my pussy. But if that's what this creepy fucking Republican shitbag is turned on by right now, thanks Donald, and that's the kind of dirty talk that he wants to engage in, he's paying you to roll with it. It's your job to roll with it. It's awful. If that were my pussy and that happened to me, I would probably, if I was in your position, if I was a service provider providing this erotic service, this erotic role play service, I would need to vent after that. I would need to shower after that. I would need to get somebody's hands into my pussy that I liked, who would say the right things, who would say things that would turn me on, not just turn himself on. But I don't think I'd speak up. It's not my job at that moment to educate that person. It's my job to perform for that person to do for that person. That's what they're paying me for. That's it. All that said, I know a lot of sex workers. We've had a lot of sex workers on the show. I have friends who are sex workers. What I often hear from them is that half the job, sometimes more than half is conversing with guys who don't have a lot of social skills or don't know how to converse with women or aren't usually in situations where the woman is kind of their equal, where the woman can take them or leave them. Yes, he's paying you, but you are free to go. You can terminate that relationship. So you can make demands about how you're treated, the ways in which he speaks to you. Escorts are allowed to have limits. And you could assert as a limit, the shit that comes out of Donald Trump's mouth pulls me out of the moment. It makes it impossible for me to provide you with this service that you are paying me a lot of money to provide you with. So err on the side of non-Trumpian dirty talk. If you want to continue to have access to my much-in-demand pussy, you can be insertive in that way, but I don't think it's your responsibility to educate someone in this circumstance. It's not your responsibility to leave this person in better condition than you found him. Hopefully, by interacting with you, he will leave in better condition than you found him. But that's not your job at that moment. And finally, a lot of people look at your position in this and see you as having none of the power and him having all of the power because he's paying you and you need that money. And there you are selling access to your body at that moment. You have power still in that moment. You can accept or reject the gig. You can accept or reject the client. You describe yourself as much in demand. You can cut off clients. You can send them packing. You can say to him, oh, you're voting for that rapist, sexually assaulting, shitbag, xenophobic, sexist, transphobic, homophobic, gay marriage opposing pile of garbage? Ah, well, you know, I have lots of other clients who aren't going to vote for someone or quote someone who is the enemy of myself and everyone that I love and respect, all women everywhere. You can send him packing if you so choose. Maybe that'll make him into a better person. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, contra your boyfriend, you don't have a responsibility to educate this dude in the moment. You have an opportunity 
which is different than a responsibility. You have an opportunity to educate that dude in that moment. And you can make a choice about whether or not you're going to do that based on your own considerations, your own needs. What's right for you in that moment? Would feel better to send him packing? Send him packing. If you can smile and let the shitty Republican Donald Trump quoting pussy grabber say whatever he needs to say so he comes quicker and gets out, you can do that too. That's the difference between having a responsibility and having an opportunity. Hi, Dan. I am a 26-year-old straight gal in Canada. Uh, so I'm in a newish relationship with a really sweet, lovely guy. Like, we just moved in together and we go on awesome adventures, mountain bike. We're about to go on a big road trip and it's rad. So he has a bit of a like low confidence issue. Like He's had some really crummy girlfriends and I think he has a hard time believing I want him. So we're dealing with that. And, I mean, I think that's going pretty well. So, here's the but. Every now and then he gets really inappropriately grabby. Like, not in a rapey kind of way. More in, like, a little kid who wants something and just kind of tries to take it. Like, he'll just reach across and full-on cut my downstairs. Or he'll start, like, playing with my breast pretty randomly. And, you know, I kind of obviously let him know I don't like it. And then he kind of tries tries to force it a little bit. My reaction's pretty black and white solid. I, you know, say, hey, like, I don't like this. Don't do this. And I get my back really up. And then it sends him into the, like, I can't do anything right. You don't even want to touch me kind of thing. And he'll almost get, like, he'll, he'll get really sad and mopey. And, yeah, so I'm kind of confused as to how to deal with it. Like, I don't know how to set the lines. He's really confused. How can I initiate sex? Like, you know, he should be able to come up to me, his partner, and kiss me. But do you have any thoughts on something or ways that I can maybe steer him a little bit more gently? Because I get quite aggressive back and, you know, I don't like this. Don't do this. And, yeah, it doesn't seem to be sending him in the right direction. I feel a little conflicted about answering this question because I will sometimes come up upon Terry behind Terry and I will grab his butt, not grab, not like squeeze grab, but like place my hands upon or my hands upon his chest. And if he's welcoming of that sort of interaction at that moment, he allows it to continue. And if he's not, he says, not now. And he kind of shrugs me off and I withdraw my hands and I go away and I don't feel bad about it. And he doesn't feel bad about the attempt, and I don't feel bad about the deflection because we're mature and grown up and we've been together a long time. You guys sound mature. You sound very grown up. You haven't been together long yet. So you haven't established a rapport, a routine. You haven't figured out how this works in your relationship and how you both fit together. And the real problem here is it sounds like when you say not now or you try to shrug it off and you communicate to him that this isn't welcome at this time – he gets sad and mopey or he keeps going, which is even worse because you've clearly withdrawn your consent and he presses it and that ain't okay. And then that makes you blow up, which you have an absolute right to do at that moment. And he should be sad and mopey and full of regret and introspection if he kept going and you had to blow up at him to get him to fucking stop. That is a huge problem. But you like him and you want this to work and mountain biking and 
You want to fix him. You don't want to dump him. And so what you need to do is get some words in between his impulse and his action and not your words. He has the impulse to touch you and he needs to say something at that moment. That's what you need to say to him. You have this impulse to touch me. Sometimes your touch is welcome. Sometimes your touch is unwelcome. And right now you can't tell the difference. You're not able to make that call yourself. You can't read me well enough to be batting even 500 on this. And you should be aiming to bat 900 on this. And you can't read me well enough to know when your touch might be welcome and when your touch would be unwelcome. So here's what we're going to do. You need to say something in between the impulse to touch me and the action of touching me that gives me the opportunity to say now. All he has to say is he wants to touch you. All he has to say is now and gesture move toward you a little bit without any contact. And at that moment you can say, yeah, now, or you can say not now. And maybe in time with enough of those words, and they're not many words, one or two inserted between his impulse and his action, he will then get a better sense of the moments when it'll work. The moments when you will be welcoming of his touch. Cause right now he can't tell the difference. So if he sees the difference over and over again, because you get him to put those words, that request in between the impulse and the action. Maybe he will get better at assessing, better at reading you. His batting average or groping average will increase to where he's at 900, where nine times out of 10, when he does touch you, it's a moment where it's welcome. He's saying now, and you're saying, yeah, now, 90% of the time, and then he can maybe stop asking at that point. Because you having to shrug him off one time out of 10 which I think is roughly how often Terry has to shrug me off, won't aggravate you so much. Right now, with you having to shrug him off nine times out of ten, that's extremely aggravating, particularly with the he continues after you've attempted to shrug him off, and he needs to knock that shit off. You need to blow up at him strategically, repeatedly, incessantly about that until that fucking stops. And don't you feel, as the woman in the relationship, don't you feel at that moment when you blow up at him when he does that shitty thing and presses it that then you have to comfort him? No, 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 no. You have to let him sit with his shitty feelings because he should feel shitty at that moment for what he did. It's not your job to rush in and comfort him at that moment because he should feel bad. Let him feel bad and let him come back to you and apologize. Don't you run to him and apologize for making him feel bad about the bad thing he did that he should feel bad for having done. But the retrain is right there, right there in between his impulse and his action. Tell him you welcome the impulse. The problem is the action isn't always welcome. You want to be desired by him and you desire him in turn, but he's not reading you. And you're going to help him get better at reading you so he fails less. So that when he does initiate, he's likelier to get the answer that he wants because he's no longer initiating when he's unlikely to get the answer that he wants and also the answer that you want. You want him initiating when you want him to initiate. Hi, Dan. I'm a 36-year-old bi female in a spectacular monogamous relationship of two years having the best sex of my life. My reason for calling is that I'm too chicken shit to share my secret kink with my amazing boyfriend just because I'm so worried it will freak him out. I've tried to broach the topic on numerous occasions, but then I back out, and now the curiosity of what it could be is driving him mad. I was hoping that you would air my call so that I can send him the link to listen, and then he can know my kink without the awkwardness of me actually having to say it to him. 
I am really turned on by adult baby porn. I fantasize all the time about treating him like a baby, changing his diaper, no real pee or poop though, just pretend, and then degrading and punishing him for having wet it, and then comforting him by nursing him and stroking and sucking his cock until he orgasms, and then punishing him a bit more for that too. I am also into daddy-daughter type play, which he engages in with me. It was never something that we discussed. I just kind of started calling him daddy and acting girlish when he would spank me and dominate me, and he just went with it. So I assume that he likes it, since it's been our main dynamic for most of our sex life. I think that's part of why I'm afraid this won't appeal to him, because it's literally the opposite of what we are doing now. Also, diaper play isn't something that I can just casually drop in while we are fucking the way that I did with my daddy-daughter fetish. He is very open and GGG sexually. He lets me peg him and all sorts of other kinky shit, but I'm just so petrified of freaking him out with this baby thing. Sometimes I just try to reverse our usual role play and treat him like I'm doing the molesting, and he plays along for a bit, but then he falls back into dominating me within minutes. I'm not sure if this is because he doesn't like the roles reversed or if he just feels awkward and isn't used to it and isn't sure how to behave as the sub in the scenario. I once made a joke about him calling me mommy, and his response was something along the lines of never, but I don't know if he was serious or joking back. So I'm nervous if I tell him that he'll be totally grossed out or even worse, I'm worried he will go along with it to please me but won't enjoy it at all. This is not anything that I need to get off, so I'm totally fine if he isn't game for it, but I would just really like to explore it if it sounds interesting to him. So baby, if you're listening and this sounds like fun, then bring home some adult diapers and baby wipes and let's give it a go. If it freaks you the fuck out, then just pretend that you never heard this call and spare me the humiliation. Okay, thanks. Love you. Bye. Not sure you need my help. There's your call. Hopefully he heard it. Hopefully he's rushing out to the store to pick up some adult diapers and baby wipes. Although I feel that since this is your kink, it's really on you to go pick up the adult diapers and the baby wipes. That should be your job if he is receptive. I do want to say quickly two things, though, that most diaper fetishists are men and it is who want to be diapered and you know there's always a hundred male paraphiliacs whatever the paraphilia you're talking about is for every one female paraphiliac always a hundred male kinksters with that kink for every one female kinkster with that kink so a woman who's into diaper play is hugely bigly as donald trump might say in demand in the adbl adult diaper baby lover whatever that is community so if this doesn't work out with him you have options, not that you have to leave him to explore those. If he's GGG and he is not into this, perhaps he might be open to you finding a dude out there who is into diapers, who you could diaper, that you could be with him without having to go without this experience all your life. But your central worry, the thing you say you're worried about most is that he will go along with this to please you, but won't enjoy it himself at all. That's part of GGG, good giving in game, that You will do something for your partner because it pleases your partner. They take pleasure in it. And it's not that you don't enjoy it at all. You enjoy their pleasure. You take pleasure in the pleasure you're providing that person. Now, not enjoy it at all can also mean icked out by it, squicked out by it, even traumatized by it, triggered by it. If that's true, if this kink for him is not just neutral or a pleasure he can take in your pleasure, but icky, squicky, traumatizing, throws him out, a libido killer, then he shouldn't do it. And GGG does not require of us that sort of activity, stuff that squicks us out, icks us out, triggers us, traumatizes us, 
is a libido killer for us. No, you don't have to do that. You don't have to go there. You can be good giving a game and have limits. But kinksters who have partners who are willing to go there, who are capable of taking pleasure in the pleasure that they're providing you, even if this thing that you're doing isn't something that they would want to do themselves independently or want to do with anyone else, you need to take that yes for the answer that it is. So if he's willing to do it for you, if he's willing to go along with this to please you, and that pleases him, let him. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 20-something-year-old guy going to college out here in the Southwest. I've been listening to your show ever since I was actually 17, and it's helped me out in life a lot. And I'm in a bit of a quandary right now, and I hope you can help me. Uh, the long short of it is, is that I have a new girlfriend, and we're both in Greek life, fraternity, sorority life, whatever you want to call it. She went to what's called a date party, which is whenever you bring a date, and there's a party, but it's just you and your date. So this other fraternity's place. It was a friend of hers, so I figured, no big deal. We hadn't been dating for that long, so I didn't want to make a big deal out of it. Uh, since at that time she had had a dog that I was personally taking care of. She doesn't have a car, so I was driving her everywhere, and I was up till 2 a.m. with food in hand waiting for her to get done at this party because I knew that she had been drinking. Uh, she ended up telling me at around 2 a.m. to go home that she had already had a ride back, so I was pretty pissed. The next day, I hear everybody tell me that uh, she was grinding on guys and trying to kiss other guys while she was drunk, and her... Uh, two friends and her tell me that she was too blacked out to remember anything and that that's not what happened. Now, since then, I'm aware of the fact that she does have a drinking problem and she is currently getting help. And I want to be there to support her, but I don't know what to do for myself in this situation. I love this girl, but I don't know if I'm willing to take care of somebody for the, for the, the duration of us dating. So your new girlfriend went to a party with some other guy where then she got completely wasted and then ground or grinded or however you would say that on other guys at the party. And then it seems that she's lying to you or minimizing what happened. And now she admits to you that she has a drinking problem. She's going to go get help with that. And you say very tellingly at the end, you love her, but you're not sure you want to take care of her for the duration of you two dating, which is a weird way to put this because when you love someone and you want to be with them, you're in for the duration. It's an open-ended relationship. And what you're saying here is that you love her, but you don't want to take care of her. And when you love somebody and you're in for the duration, you're signing up to take care of them. So if you have these two impulses, I love her, but I don't want to take care of her. Well, then you should probably end it because you don't love her. You are enamored of her. You're attracted to her. You're infatuated or you're crushed out on her, but you don't love her. Because if your impulse is, I love you, but I want to take care of you, then you don't love them. Because loving someone is about taking care of them. And what you know of this girl right now is that she's not in good working order. You are not ready to make a large emotional investment in her that would then obligate you to take care of her because she might be too messy right now. It might be too much work to take care of her. So she needs to go off and get the help that she needs as a single young lady with a drinking problem, go off and get the help that she needs. And then maybe if after she gets the help that she needs, after she gets on top of this drinking problem, you two can pick up where you left off. If you are still single, if she's still single, she might meet somebody else in rehab or at AA and not be single a year from now when she's got this under control. But right now you got to pull the plug right now. It might actually help her 
if you pulled the plug. Because if she likes you too, if she's enamored of you too, if she's infatuated with you too, and the drinking problem costs her this relationship, it may help her to recognize how problematic this drinking problem is. Sometimes dumping someone is a thing you need to do to help them. Particularly, and this is hard to do, I know, I've been there, particularly when someone has a substance abuse problem. We all acknowledge that what it takes when someone has a substance abuse problem to get on top of that, to realize they have to get on top of that is what? It's a cliche. Everybody knows it. Hitting bottom, which can mean losing your job, your friends cutting you off, losing your romantic partner. So you're not, if you're that romantic partner in all instances, it's not about abandoning someone at their time of need. Sometimes it's about doing exactly what that person needs of you at that moment, which is to be dumped. And I think it would be in her best interests and more importantly for you in your best interests. If you just went to her and said, right now, this isn't going to work for me right now. You need to go get help. And I think you need to do that as a single person. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old bisexual femme living on the East Coast. I recently had a rocky relationship with someone who was a younger and less experienced butch coming into their gender identity. About halfway through the relationship, they supported me in making the decision to become a stripper at a local club. They even accompanied me when I went to check out the club where I now work. Several months later, we broke up because we both knew the relationship wasn't meeting our needs. This breakup was hard on them because I was their first love. After a few weeks of not speaking to each other, we met up to talk about what went wrong in our relationship and our process of moving forward since the breakup. During the conversation, they were eager to criticize all the ways I had done them wrong in the relationship. As we were parting ways, they casually lifted their shirt and said, oh, by the way, if I show you something, do you promise not to hate me? They proceeded to lift their shirt and reveal the tattoo of a butt in a thong with a dollar sign on the upper right ass cheek. After seeing me turn visually upset, they told me the tattoo was a part of their process in getting over their relationship. I see this as an attempt to degrade me, my body, and my work. I would normally cut someone like this out of my life, but the queer community in my city is relatively small. This person is interested in being accountable and was open to the idea of getting the tattoo covered up. My question is, do you think that it could be possible to trust this person again? Or do you think someone who gets a tattoo of your ass as a merit badge gets no mercy? Okay, first of all, you are not obligated to get together after a relationship ends to process and parse out and hash out and thinly slice every fucking thing that went wrong. You are obligated when a relationship ends to stay the fuck away from each other for a while so that the wounds close. But it seems to be common in some chunks of queer community land for people to meet up and hash out and process, 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 process and pick, pick, pick at scabs that have yet to form. And for what reason? Well, I guess to stay engaged, to stay involved, to keep those fish hooks in each other. And so the tattoo is just a piece of that and a very effective piece of that. The tattoo that she got to piss you off, it fucking worked. You allowed yourself to be trolled with a tattoo. The thing you should have done when they opened their shirt and showed you their asshole tattoo, which was designed to bait you, was not play the part that they were demanding you play at that moment. Not be baited. Not perform anger for them at their request. Even if you had to fake it. Even if you had to stifle it. 
your move then was to pretend that you were not angry about this because you do not care what they do with their body because you're not in a fucking relationship anymore. And they don't answer to you anymore. So fuck this accountability crap. They're not accountable to you. You are not accountable to each other anymore. You are not involved anymore. Just because you're locked in the little hot box of a tiny queer community doesn't mean you have to talk to each other, meet up with each other, inspect each other's bodies for asshole tattoos that may or may not crop up or get covered up in an accountability moment. Fuck that. They're your ex. Don't have coffee with them to talk about your fucking feelings. Don't have coffee with them and give them the opportunity to give you brand new feelings that then you will have to process and talk about and have accountability moments about that will give her an opportunity to get another fucking tattoo about it. No. Don't see them anymore. It's over. This war is over if you want it to be over. Just don't show up on the battlefield of bullshit, processy, emotion, accountability moments, horseshit, extending the life of the emotional entanglement that you got out of this relationship to end. Forgive me for this. Stop being such a cliche. As someone said on the Lovecast, a caller once long ago, not my monkeys, not my circus. Not your butch romantic partner, not your chest, not your tattoo, not your monkeys, not your fucking circus. Have some, what's the word? Have some boundaries. You had some process. You had some accountability horse shit moment. Now have some fucking boundaries. It's over. It's done. They're out of your life. Get the fuck out of their shirt. Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old straight male, and I have a question about emotions, or rather, lack of emotions when it comes to dating. Before graduating college, I did not date a lot at all. But since graduation, I must have gone on dates with at least 50 to 100 different women who I've met through a combination of online dating sites, organized events in my area, and mutual friends. There are four women who I've dated for at least a few months, most of which I still have a cordial or friendly connection with. The issue that I cannot seem to figure out is that even though in most of these relationships I shared great times with these women, laughed a lot, and had some great sex, I've never once been devastated or upset for more than a day or two over a breakup. Everybody in my life who seems to have clicked well with their partner in a past relationship appears to me to at least be a little more upset than I have been when their breakup occurs. For my breakups, I have been both on the initiating and the receiving side. My friends tell me that the reason I have never been upset over a breakup is that I have never truly fallen in love with anybody that I did not care about the woman enough to be devastated over her. This reasoning seems wrong to me, though, because I am convinced that I do know what love feels like, and I've had feelings for these women both emotionally and physically that make me feel infinitely happier and a better person for being around them. So my question is this. Is it possible that I've never been upset over a breakup, but at the same time truly loved some of these women? Am I an underreacting sociopathic freak remaining stoic through these breakups that should stress me out and upset me at least a little? And lastly, are there others like me because I don't know anyone in my life who has the same situation? But knowing that there are others out there who can go through breakups almost without emotion would somehow make me feel more secure. Please help. You can go see a shrink and there are tests that they can 
administer to determine whether you're a sociopath or not. So there's a way to rule that out and it doesn't include calling some faggot with a sex advice podcast to make a determination or a ruling because I'm not in any position to make that determination or ruling. What I will say is it doesn't sound like you're unhappy. People are looking at you and saying, why aren't you miserable? You should be miserable. We would be miserable if we were going through what you had just gone through. But you're not obligated to feel worse than you actually feel. Maybe the case is that you are a sociopath and you have a harder time forming interpersonal human connections. It doesn't mean you can't. It doesn't mean it's not possible for you. It doesn't mean it won't happen for you. But it might be more of an effort and a struggle and it might require some conscious, focused effort on your part when it comes to building those sorts of attachments and that kind of relationship. Or maybe you just haven't been in love. Maybe you haven't. Any of the women, you're only 25 fucking years old. Maybe none of the women you've been with and you've dated and you've enjoyed having sex with and enjoyed spending time with really reached you and touched you. And so the ends of those relationships didn't devastate you because you weren't that invested in them emotionally. It could be one or the other. It could also be both. But if you want to be reassured that you are not a sociopath, Get thee to a shrink, go. Or if you want to find out if you are a sociopath and what that means for you going forward when it comes to relationships, forming lasting connections and feeling feelings, again, you're going to have to get thee to a shrink. Hi, Dan. Uh, I'm a 33-year-old man from Australia. And I'm calling because this morning my stepfather of my mother who has Alzheimer's disease told us that he is having an affair with a woman who is a mutual friend of him and my mother. That's obviously a shock. So he was basically just telling us that to be upfront about it, I suppose. But now there's a bit of a um, disagreement about whether to tell my mum or not that there's an affair going on basically under the, their roof because this woman stays at their place um, a couple of nights a week and she visits my mum uh, quite a lot and takes her out to do things quite a lot. So overall, this woman's role in my, in my mum's life is positive. However, it seems cruel to rely on my mum's Alzheimer's disease to carry out this affair under her nose. Um, so we're just wondering, myself and my three other siblings, are just wondering what you think would be the best thing to do. Does my mum have a right, a right to know? Her Alzheimer's is, she lacks autonomy. She can't go out on her own. She needs help, you know, making food um, or, you know, being fed being clothed but she still understands that things are going on in fact she informed us that she thought that something weird was going on between my stepfather and this woman long before our stepfather contacted us about it so yeah we just don't know what to do is this one of those situations where it's better not to say anything or is it cruel or abusive for my stepfather to carry out this affair under my mum's nose, relying on her Alzheimer's disease to do so. 
what's the end game if you go tell your mother what your stepfather told you and I think was right to tell you that he has a new romantic partner, that he's having this affair. What's the end game? What, what is your mother supposed to do with that information if indeed she is capable of processing that information? Is she supposed to do, quote unquote, the right thing and divorce your stepfather? Are you and your siblings prepared to step into the roles that your stepfather and this old friend and now his current sex partner are playing in your mother's life, which is her full-time caregivers, which is something that the two of them are probably more capable of doing as a team than your stepfather would be capable of doing alone or that you or your siblings would be capable of doing at this stage of your lives at all. So I'm not sure why you feel obligated to go share this information with your mother who is deteriorating and it sounds like she's deteriorating rapidly with Alzheimer's disease. Your stepfather is now more nurse and caregiver to your mother. And I'm so sorry. I ache for you and your siblings. Alzheimer's is a tragedy and it's a horror to watch. It puts pressure on families and people wind up doing things, making accommodations and adjustments that they wouldn't have expected that they would have to make. And sometimes that can include seeking intimacy and physical comfort Elsewhere, your stepfather is now to your mother, as I was saying, caregiver and nurse. And if he was alone, if he didn't have this woman in his life that he also has a sexual connection with, he would be doing that all by himself. She is this person that your stepfather is having an affair with under the nose of your mother. She is not the problem here. Alzheimer's disease is the problem. Alzheimer's and what it is robbing you kids of, which is your mother, your stepfather of, which is his spouse and his sex partner and his mate. Alzheimer's is the problem. It seems to me that this connection that your stepfather has with this other woman isn't the problem. It is a solution. It is a band-aid. It is a workaround. It is an assistance. It is a blessing and not just to your stepfather. It is a blessing of a compromised, awkward, human, problematic, fallible sort also to your mother. Because of the emotional connection that your stepfather has to this woman, she is doing what very few people would do. She is assuming responsibilities to and for your mother because perhaps of her affection and attachment to your stepfather. She is stepping in and playing a needed and necessary role as caregiver in your mother's life. As painful as it may be to know that this relationship that your stepfather has with this other woman has a sexual dimension and that used to be exclusively the province of your mother. That used to be something that characterized their relationship. I would hope that you could recognize your stepfather's right to some intimacy and some comfort and some connection and your mother's need for the love and support and care of not just one full-time caregiver because it would kill one full-time caregiver to take care of someone living in the home with Alzheimer's at the stage, the advanced stage that it sounds like your mother is at. She needs both of these people taking care of. I understand why it bothers you because the culture tells us that that is supposed to bother you. The culture tells us that 
Touching other people with our genitals is the most important and defining characteristic of a marriage. That a marriage means monogamy and it means not touching anybody else with your genitals ever again because you're married and the measure of your commitment to one another is that you don't touch anybody else with your genitals. When someone is in long-term decline, when someone is very, very ill, the measure of your commitment to that person is not, are you touching anyone else with your genitals right now? The measure of your commitment to that person is, are you taking care of them? Are you seeing them through this terminal illness? So that's the question you need to ask yourself. Is your stepfather taking good care of your mother? Sounds like he is. Is this other woman taking good care of your mother? Are they together as a team taking good care of your mother? Maybe then you can turn a blind eye to the sexual connection or allow for it. And not just allow for it and tolerate it because it's a necessary evil, but maybe recognize its benefit, its utility, its humanity. I remember back in the shitty days. I remember back in the 80s, back in the early 90s, when so many guys that I knew were taking care of their dying partners, gay guys in long-term relationships, some of them that had been monogamous, long-term relationships, their partners are dying. And sometimes they stepped out of the side of the relationship to feel affirmed, attractive, alive again, for some sexual release, for some comfort, some intimacy, to be taken care of themselves for just a little bit. And that made it possible for them to go home and be the nurse, the full-time caregiver, the doctor, the advocate that their dying would have been husbands if they could have been husbands needed at that time. But their relationships had moved past sex. The importance of sex and how it defined that relationship had drained away. Have some compassion, have some understanding for your stepfather's plight. Have some respect for what your stepfather is doing for your mother, some gratitude for what he's doing for your mother. And don't torment your mother with information that she may not be able to process, may not remember tomorrow. If you go tell her, and a week later she doesn't remember, are you prepared to tell her again? It's a horrible situation. I ache for you kids. I ache for your mother. I ache for your stepfather. He confided this in you because he thought you should know because he didn't want you to suspect. And zooming out, you need to ask, what's in the best interest of mom at this moment? How do we take care of mom? I don't think the answer is it's in the best interest of mom for you to go and tell her what she may have suspected a year ago. And I don't think it's in the best interest of mom for you to burden her with this. If I were in your position, I would be grateful to this woman for what she's doing for your mother, you list off all of the things she does for your mother and also what she's doing for your stepfather, what she's doing for you and what she's doing for your mom. Our cultures, United States, Australia, Canada, pretty much worldwide, sex negative. And our impulse is always to see sex as the problem and sex as the door that opens unto chaos. And it would just be better if everyone everywhere didn't have sex. And your stepfather is having sex with someone who is not your mother at this moment. And your natural impulse is to see that as a problem and think the world would be better and your mother would somehow be better cared for if your stepfather wasn't 
having sex with this other woman. And I challenge you to try to see that in a different way. Your stepfather may be better able to care for your mother because he is having a sexual connection with this other woman. Not less capable, more capable. And it will do your mother no good to be told. You need to come together as a team. You kids, your stepfather, even this woman. And take care of your mother and make her burden as light as it can possibly be at this stage of her life. I would not, if I were you, burden her with this information. Again, going all the way back to when I started ranting at you at the top. What is she to do with it? She is in a position where she needs help and full-time supervision and care. And the way that full-time care has come together is complicated and messy and human and compromised. But even as it's all of those things, ask yourself, is it in your mother's best interests to be cared for the way she's being cared for by these two people who love her and also love each other? I think the answer to that question is yes. And if the answer to that question is yes, it follows that you should not say anything to your mother. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to have a conversation with Alexander Bonnie Sines, a law professor at Chicago Kent College of Law, who recently published a paper in the Social Science Research Network about something he calls sexual advance directives. Hey, Alexander, thanks for jumping on the phone. Hi. Uh, so tell us about this idea that you have about sexual advance directives and what they are and how they would work and why we need to be talking about them. Right. So a sexual advance directive is a legal device uh, through which you can either uh, set forth consent decisions for sex in advance or appoint an agent who is able to make consent decisions for you at a point in the future. Uh, why we need it uh, is because there are certain points in a person's life when they lack the capacity to consent to sex. Uh, so this is usually due to some kind of uh, cognitive problem. And I focus on the, the situation of older adults with Alzheimer's or d- disease or dementia in long-term care institutions. Well, there was that famous case, I think, in Iowa, where right. a state legislator, a guy named Henry Rands, I'm looking at, the, at a piece about him now, was prosecuted for having sex with his wife who had Alzheimer's, who was in a long-term care facility, that exactly. he said was consensual. He was, he was ruined. He was dragged through the mud. He was prosecuted for rape. He was ultimately exonerated uh, by a jury. He was acquitted. Is that the sort of situation that you're anticipating? That's exactly the type of situation. Um, and in that, situ- in that case, we had him allegedly having sexual contact with his wife. He said he, he did not. And the state coming in and saying, even if she said yes, it does not matter because she lacked capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he should be prosecuted for rape. And that became an issue because we have, of course, the long-term care institution that is in charge of the welfare of its, re- of its residents, uh, and it wants to avoid legal liability as well. So they want to exercise oversight, uh, whereas in a private home, they probably wouldn't have this issue. Okay, so I can hear heads exploding across the country right now <laughs> with people you know, running to their computers to send me emails and jumping on the phone to scream and yell about if someone lacks the capacity to consent, they cannot consent to sex in advance or at all. So someone who lacks that capacity shouldn't be required to fill out a form in advance or that form shouldn't be respected. If you lack a capacity to consent, you just shouldn't be having sex or someone shouldn't be having sex with you. What's your, what's your response to that? Well, uh, I, I think that the sexual advance directive is only part of the picture. 
so I, I think that sexual advance directives, uh, you should be able to fill one out, uh, but they only become operative if yourself, when you're incapacitated, also is showing some kind of token of consent to sex, so uh, that you're affirmatively expressing volition to have sex. Mm-hmm. And we often see this with certain types of, of conditions. Uh, with Alzheimer's disease, sometimes people experience disinhibition uh, of sexual drive, so they will actively pursue other individuals for sexual contact. In that case, we know that the person in that time actually uh, does want to have sex, and it's just this legal barrier that we've set up that uh, they don't have capacity. Um, so the, the, the broader reason why is that I, I value people's sexual lives throughout the life course. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that people should be restricted uh, from having sexual contact and have their sexual desires completely shut off just because of this legal rule of capacity. So I'm trying to think creatively of ways uh, that we can help people have those sexual lives while also guarding against the risk of sexual abuse. Do you think part of the discomfort or what might be informing people's discomfort with this whole conversation? Because, you know, people leap to someone's basically in a vegetative state, incapable of indicating any consent at all, and somebody has a piece of paper that says, I can fuck this person, and that makes people uncomfortable. But do you think, and you're talking about a different sort of situation, where somebody is incapacitated, where things are gray, but they can still express desire, intent, and with this sexual advance directive, those expressions of desire can be rounded up to consent with this person who uh, they consented to in advance. Uh, but do you think part of what might inform the discomfort with this whole conversation is just this desire to not talk about, you know, this, this, this wish we all had that old people just weren't sexual, didn't have sex at all. We didn't have to contemplate this or think about this or think about getting old ourselves and incapacitated ourselves. Oh, certainly. And I mean, I- I'm just focusing on the legal barrier, which is this capacity rule, but there's certainly other barriers. There are cultural barriers. Uh, we're in general, we're generally a sex-negative culture. We also don't like to think of old people having sex. We certainly don't like to think of people with disabilities uh, having sex. Uh, there are also financial barriers. So I'm talking about the context of long-term care institutions, and I do that because then we have some possibility of third-party oversight mm-hmm. of the sexual behavior. But at the same time, uh, we. These, these institutions often don't have enough staff to ensure quality of life and other kind of basic ways. Uh, so that's an additional barrier we might have to implementing kind of a sex-positive nursing home culture. Um, so, uh, yes, it's a, it's a variety of things that lead to uh, kind of repression of the sex lives of older people with disabilities. Uh, I'm focusing on the legal barrier, uh, sex-negative culture, and sex-negative culture as applied to people with disabilities and older people definitely play a part as well. So there was a famous case in Canada that's not quite related, but I think is kind of related, bank shot related, where a man was prosecuted for having sex with his unconscious wife, sex that she had consented to in advance. And the Canadian Supreme Court ruled that a woman or anyone cannot give advanced consent to sexual activity while unconscious. Would a sexual advance directive in your thinking cover something like that? So I am more skeptical of sexual advance directives in that context for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, we don't have the deprivation of an entire sex life like we do with someone who has a uh, cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's disease or dementia. So mm-hmm. in that situation, you're not deprived of an entire sexual life. You can still have sex, just uh, not necessarily while unconscious. Um, second, uh, we don't necessarily have the third-party oversight that we would with the long-term care institution. Uh, so a lot of the sex, I presume, would be happening uh, in private, in a home, and we can't make sure that for instance, the scope of consent isn't, uh, isn't exceeded, right? So they might consent to certain forms of sex while unconscious, but not others. We'd never know uh, whether that was adhered to or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but third, I, I'm not sure there's as much of an issue. 
so the issue with older people in institutions is that the institutions are creating quite sex-negative policies, right? Uh, and they were, they were actively restricting their residents from having sex. Whereas people are relatively free to have unconscious sex at home, uh, assuming nothing goes wrong. And there's going to be a lack of enforcement because the authorities are not going to find out about it. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about the Canadian case is that only came to light uh, because the woman uh, who, was con- who had consented to sex in advance did contact the authorities to let them know that that had happened. And it turns out that she was having a, a custody battle with over their son uh, with her long-term boyfriend, who was her sexual partner. Mm-hmm. Um, she later recanted that she did not consent in advance, that she did consent in advance. Uh, and that's how it ended up in the courts at all. I suspect that in most situations, we would not have cases of unconscious sex in private homes uh, coming before the court and being enforced. And you're thinking, could a sexual advance directive expire? Could someone become so incapacitated that a sexual advance directive consenting to sex with a particular person, a spouse, a long-term partner, could become non-operative? So uh, clearly I, I need there to be, at least in my, my regime, I would need there to be some kind of ability to express volition. So if you are a vegetable or if, you, uh, if your kind of interactions with the outside world are so ambiguous that we can't discern that you actually have sexual desire for a particular type of sexual contact. You can't consent in advance being treated like a flashlight. Yes, Exactly. Um, and there, I have other concerns with that too. So there's the question of the permanently unconscious uh, and consenting in advance to sex. And sometimes we may not know if the person is actually uh, totally out of it. They might just be sh- kind of shut into their own minds. Uh, so we have the risk that there could be repeated sexual contact that is not in fact consented to at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's kind of a serious risk that I'd, I'd like to avoid. But you bring up an a, a interesting point of there's a lot of practicalities around advanced directives. Uh, so uh, do we treat it more like a will where you need to get witnesses and you need to have a certain level of specificity in it? Uh, do you need to renew them after a certain amount of time? These are, these are questions that are interesting uh, about how to set up the legal regime. Um, and I address some of them in the article, uh, but doesn't go to the core point about whether we should have them at all. And interestingly enough, and just to remind people, we already respect a certain kind of advanced directive around death that you can write an advanced directive calling for no extraordinary measures to, to keep you alive, calling for not being hooked up to machines. We allow people who are incapacitated to choose to die. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, no advanced consent is actually, there are plenty of examples in it throughout the law and you've identified the most common and most uh, known area, which is uh, advanced directives for healthcare. Um, or you want to set out kind of the conditions under which you die. Uh, we also have advanced consent in situations of surgery uh, where you consent to having the doctor cut you open and, you know, make you better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even in more mundane settings, uh, anytime you set up, say, uh, a recurring payment uh, with your credit card or with your bank, you're consenting in advance to having your property removed or transferred to another person. Uh, and they don't need to consult you in the moment uh, for that to happen. Um, so, as is often the case with sex, advanced consent is, is more controversial in the sexual arena. Um, but there's also another reason why it might be uh, more controversial, which is that it, it does have a little bit of a checkered history. Uh, actually, so it's not a little bit, a lot. Um, and that the main situation in which advanced consent was permitted in the law uh, was in the context of marital rape. Uh, where when a wife entered into a marital union with a husband, uh, she, uh, according to the law at the time, consented in advance to all sex with her husband uh, in the future. and Therefore, marital rape was not possible. Um, now, of course, this is a very different context from the one 
I'm considering, but uh, some people are very suspicious of advanced consent in the sexual context for that reason. How's the article been received? Um, it's, uh, I get a variety of reactions to it <laughs> from, oh, this is great. I want to fill out one of these immediately to, uh, there, there's too much risk of sexual abuse. I can't uh, believe that you're uh, kind of suggesting this at all to, mm-hmm. I've never thought of that before. What an interesting uh, topic. So I've been, I've been pleased by the range of reactions because at least it's getting a reaction. And I think there's two things that inform the negative reactions, which are the general sex negativity out there. Better to err on the side of no sex ever for anyone. So we're all safe from right. sex. Sex is always bad. But also ignorance of uh, people with cognitive impairments, people with long-term disabilities and long-term care who may have Alzheimer's. Because I know from family members who've been in this situation that not only is there volition, not only there is there desire, but sometimes that intimate contact, not talking about sex necessarily, but intimate contact brings comfort, brings joy. It's the only time that a particular relative of mine recognized his wife when they were laying together intimately, not necessarily being sexual. And – so this attitude that this person who filled out the sexual advance directive is being abused or used somehow, often people in that situation, this is, this is something that brings them joy and comfort and recognition. No, definitely. And I mean, it's, it's interesting. Nursing homes and assisted living facilities can be uh, lonely places, right? Uh, and sex is one of the ways in which we form connections with other people. So it can help ameliorate that kind of inherent loneliness of institutions. Uh, but yes, it's also a biological drive, right? And it's one of the, the last things, quote unquote, to go if you have a degenerative disorder. Uh, so people might be one of the few ways in which people can experience uh, happiness or pleasure. Uh, so there is a, a large upside to actually not restricting the sexual lives of people in these circumstances. Alexander Bonnie Science, Chicago Kent College of Law professor. Thank you so much for discussing this with us today. It's really fascinating. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Hi, Dan. I am having a grading emergency. Uh, I'm a college professor early in my career, and I just got an essay from a student who, in describing some of his ethical beliefs, said that he has recently converted to a very rigorous Christian church, and it helped him to see that his previous homosexual behavior was sinful and degenerate. And I am at a loss for how to help this kid. I have been talking to my students about finding their moral compasses and trying to coach them to be more reflective about their ethical actions. And I don't know. I'm just, I'm just at a loss with this one. I feel like I can't let it go and let him keep thinking that I think that's okay by just reading it like an essay. So help. Grade the essay on its merits. I completely agree with you. It's a tragedy that this kid has been sucked in to some bullshit faith tradition that's making him feel terrible about being a homo. Hopefully he will figure his way out of this corner that he's painted himself into. A lot of kids do. Hopefully he will work through this. Hopefully this is just a phase as the religious crazy parents like to say about homosexuality itself. Hopefully it's just a phase and he will find his way out of this dark and dim-witted corner. It's not your job to rescue him. You're his college prof. You're grading this paper. Grade it on its merits. If you were judging a debate team and the other side was debating a position that you thought was indefensible, but 
they did a great job. You'd still have to give them passing marks for mounting the best debate defense of whatever shitty position that they were arguing. So that's your job there. Grade the paper on its merits as an essay. If you want to engage in a little subterfuge, if you want to reach this kid, I don't think you pull him aside, tell him he's full of shit, tell him whatever church he just signed up for, whatever anti-gay bullshit he's ingesting is bullshit and he should run away from it. You don't want to target him. First of all, I think you could probably get in trouble at your university if you so targeted him and he complained. But maybe you could assign to the whole class Matthew Vine's terrific book, God and the Gay Christian, which if he had to read it, and sit with it and think about it and write an essay about it along with everybody else in the class, it might help him, might help him break through. There's still time to add that to the syllabus. There's still time to throw another assignment at these kids Throw that assignment at all of them, not just at him. Hi, Dan. This is a 23-year-old man living on the west side of the United States. And my question I'm calling is about sex with my fiance and I. My question is about sex. When we decide, we have, very, we have a lot of open conversations about sex and what we like and what we would like to try with each other. My question is when we want to get more kinky, we want to try stuff, you know, be a little rough, be a little tied up and... I have a problem finding the the spot in the middle. I can be vanilla. I can have great casual sex when we both want to have sex with each other. And when she wants to try to get a little more kinky and step out of her comfort zone sometimes, I typically go too far for her and I get too rough too quick and then typically shut down the kink. And I don't, and there's things that she wants to try that I don't want to have to shut down or have to have her shut down because it's gone too far too quick for her. So if there's any tips or you can teach me or tell me how to find the, the middle happy zone when I can gradually work up to something or anything like that. Okay. So you say that you go too far too fast. It gets too rough too quick and it pulls her out of it or she has to safe word out or call a stop. Can you describe what it is that's happening at these moments? Yeah, so typically our sex is relatively vanilla, and then there are days and times where she wants to try to do more. So she likes to be tied up and mm-hmm. blindfolded. And then because I'm typically just more experienced with being kinky like that, um, I'll, I'll choke too hard. I will. Uh, wait, I think wait, I, wait. I slapped her. You choke too hard? I, I grabbed her throat too hard, and it, it, it took her out of it just because it was uh-huh. – I grabbed her throat too hard, and I slapped her once, and she didn't – on the face, and she didn't like that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, Are you talking about these things in advance of attempting them? Um, I don't think enough. Um, she says she wants to try new stuff, and, and so – Okay, um, it's, fine to, would, it's fine to want to try new stuff, but there's, there are things you just don't bust out on somebody – Particularly when it comes to S and M, you just don't slap somebody in the face because that can be yeah, traumatizing or triggering. Triggering. There are people who a slap in the face can like bring on a horrible migraine. I'm one of those people. Uh, choking can be intense for someone, particularly if they've ever been assaulted or choked in a non-consensual manner. So these are all things that you need to have long conversations about. And I know that can seem like then it's not spontaneous, then we're not in the moment, but you've done spontaneous in the moment S&M, and as you have discovered, it doesn't fucking work, right? Yeah, yeah. You keep stepping on that rake. Stop stepping on that rake. Okay. You have to negotiate all of this in advance, find out what her limits are, and then take baby steps. You know, if you had said, you know, I've done this before, and 
with somebody who enjoyed slapping is that something you might enjoy and she's like well i don't know i don't know how i'd feel about it in the moment then if you were going to attempt it it would be very light slapping you wouldn't call off and really slap somebody yeah hard and so the the, the mistake you're making is applying this i think even in the context of vanilla sex mistaken notion but this common notion about vanilla sex is that it should all just kind of happen without much talking because then it's about passion and getting carried away and it's all natural and if you talk about it too much then you drain it of passion and spontaneity spontaneity is the enemy of good experiences when you're talking about bdsm okay you can't spontaneously hurt someone in a way that they enjoy because you're likely to hurt someone as likely to hurt someone in a way that they're not going to enjoy yeah, I understand that. So you have to start talking. And I know that can seem like then you're not the top. If you're the top, you're supposed to be taking your pleasure and doing what you want. But that's not true. The top in a BDSM play scenario is doing for the bottom. The bottom is always in charge in BDSM play. If the bottom's not in charge, then it's assault or, yeah. or a shitty experience. The bottom's in charge. The the role play comes in and the skill comes in for the top to within the parameters, within the limits, to make it look like you're doing whatever you want, to make the bottom feel like they're helpless before your desires when actually you're kind of tagging their bases for them. And maybe, okay. maybe with baby steps, pushing the envelope a little bit here and there, but only if you're very skilled at reading someone's desire levels and you can still be talking at those moments. You can still be obtaining their consent and making it clear that you're asking for their consent, not demanding it. Even if there's a dom sub dynamic going on, you're getting their buy-in mm-hmm. and their affirmative, enthusiastic buy-in without being manipulative. But it sounds like you're making really JV junior varsity mistakes when it comes to S&M. You're not talking about okay. it. You're not negotiating. You're going too far, too fast. And you've got the roles backwards. You're not in charge when you're topping her. She is. Okay. I didn't look at it like that before. Not about meeting your needs. It's about meeting her needs. You are performing for her when you are topping her, not the other way around. Okay. A book I recommend by Lee Harrington and Melina Williams, playing well with others, your field guide to discovering, exploring and navigating the kink leather and BDSM communities. There's lots of great advice in that book. Two other books I would recommend, both classics. Melina's book is more recent, but The Loving Dominant is a terrific book that you might want to pick up by John Warren and Screw the Roses, Send Me the Thorns, The Romance and Sexual Sorcery of Sadomasochism. Another terrific book. Okay. Do some reading. You guys, you know, people hear about BDSM, you know, they watch BDSM kink porn. They, you know, kinksters are more sort of public and uh, and then they think they can just do it. They can just go for it. And you can't just do it. You can't just go for it. You've got to think about it and be cautious and take it slow because you can really traumatize someone. You could really hurt somebody. Yeah. And I don't want her to, to assume that I'll go always go too fast too. And I want her to be able to talk to me and tell me what she does like and doesn't in the future and build up to stuff like that and take it slow. And I yeah. think the most important point, and you said you'd never thought of it this way. When you're topping her, you're, you're subbing for her. You're doing for her when you top her. You're performing mm-hmm. for her to turn her on. You're playing a role. And the bottom is in charge of, of the limits and, and the parameters. The bottom sets those. 
and you operate within those limits and parameters and you have some freedom within those limits and parameters, but she sets them. So you have to draw her out and you have to listen. All right. Good luck. Thank you. Sure thing. Hi, Dan. Love you. Love your show. I'm calling with some feedback for the caller from episode 520, whose brother is in a bad marriage and she was seeking your advice on how to best support him. You don't stay together for the kids. You break up for the kids. When you stay in a miserable relationship and you have children, you are modeling misery for them. Kids who grow up with miserable parents internalize that this is normal. Living in misery is not normal, and it's up to us as parents to model something healthy for our children so they can grow up and be healthy. Hey, Dan. Um, I have a response for the girl who was very afraid of her partner dying before her. Um, I'm 23, and my partner died when he was 25. So it could happen to anyone at any time. Just because he's older doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to die first. You could die before him, and uh, it's basically a terrible experience regardless. But as long as you are confident in yourself and you know what you yourself love, you're going to be okay even if your partner does die. That is something I've had to learn. Hi, Dan. I'm calling uh, with, with some feedback about episode 520 and the caller whose girlfriend likes to hear stories when they have sex. When I heard that call, I, uh, I had a really sexy situation pop into my head from just a few weeks ago. A girlfriend of mine uh, wanted to read me a really long article that we were both interested in. And as we were laying there and she was reading, I just started teasing her a little bit with kisses on her legs and her stomach and her abs. And eventually, I started going down on her. Uh, it was really fun because she struggled to keep concentration. But as she would lose concentration, I would kind of tell her, hey, keep reading. I'm really interested in this. And she'd continue reading the article. And I could go down on her in a way where I could take her to the edge of not being able to actually continue reading. And then I could back off and she could continue reading. Uh, and basically, we could edge her pussy together, and it was really, really hot. So maybe that caller can have his girlfriend read a story or an article or whatever she's interested in as they hook up, and they can get that same kind of pleasure. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a comment or a question for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. You can subscribe to the Magnum Edition of the Savage Lovecast at savagelovecast.com, where you can also find a comment thread on each and every show. So if there's something you've got to say, got to get off your chest, go to savagelovecast.com. And fans of the opening rants on the Savage Lovecast, fans of the politics stuff, might want to check out Blabbermouth. It's another podcast hosted by Stranger Staffer and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Eli Sanders. Eli and me and Rich Smith and a rotating cast of characters from The Stranger talk about politics and we went down that Blabbermouth, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. And speaking of Twitter, the Sugar Tits tweets, it only took me a year and some change to listen to the Lovecast from the beginning. I'm finally current. Thanks, Dan Savage. No, thank you, Sugar Tits, for being such a dedicated listener. Savage Lovecast is produced by Nancy Hartunian, also the producer of Blackout, and me and Nancy and the tech savvy at risk youth. We will all be back after next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Enjoy.